Let's move on. So we've been in this series uh, called Crossroads. We've been looking at the life of Abraham. Now, if you haven't been here before, this is a perfect sermon to come to because it really has nothing to do with anything else we've talked about. Because so far we've been talking about Abraham and how Abraham is the model of faith for us. But today we're going to go back in time and going to talk about a guy we've kind of left by the roadside a little bit, a man named Lot. Now, Lot is Abraham's nephew. So Abraham's brother dies. We don't know how, but actually fairly young. And Abraham, just being who he is, he actually takes his nephew in and raises him as his own. And so his nephew has been with him as he was called by God to go. They're in the promised land. Uh, Things have been going well for them. Uh, We saw Lot's kind of mentioned peripherally. I want to go pick up those incidents so we can kind of watch Lot's uh, path through here. And um, we're going to try to learn from that. A little bit different today because we've been trying to learn about faith through, through Abraham. That's not the lesson Lot is going to teach us. So let me back up a little bit. This is the first time we really see Lot enter the story in a big way is after they've been there for a little while, they're blessed. And you know, this is because God's blessing Abraham and, and his nephew's living with him. So his nephew gets blessed too. It's great to hang around people who are being blessed. And, and so uh, being a very generous man, Abraham has given him his own flocks and his own herds, and those have been blessed as well. And it's gotten so big that they're running into each other. And the Bible picks this up in Genesis 13. Lot, who had traveled with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And now the land was not able to support them, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. That's a good place to be. You know, if you have your family all living around and you guys are all blessed so much that you're crowding each other. That's a great place to be. So the people who took care of Abram's herds and those who took care of Lot's herds began to argue. Another sign you're wealthy. You know, my brothers and I fight, but this would be like we have our servants fight for us. You know, we're so wealthy, we have servants to fight for us. Um, the people taking, and so, so Abram says a lot, look, let's not argue with each other. The people taking care of your herds and those taking care of mine shouldn't be arguing with another, one another because we're, we're the same family. Isn't the whole land in front of you? God gave us this whole promised land. We've been kind of crowded over here, which made sense when they first moved there since everybody else didn't like them. They kind of got together, but that's changed. You know, by this time, Abraham has like 380 servants of his own. And so we can spread out. He says, we got the whole land in front of us. And then Abraham does one of the most generous things in the Bible. He says, look, we'll separate. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You head east, I'll go west. We'll split up. And he gives him first choice which is incredibly gracious, which wouldn't happen anywhere else. The head of the family usually gets the best stuff and everybody else gets what's left over. But he says, no, whatever you want, you take it and I'll do it. So Lot looked around and he saw the whole Jordan Valley towards the town of Zor had plenty of water. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And Lot's like, oh, pretty lights. So he's kind of seeing in the distance. He's like, that's where everybody's already settled, actually. And that's got water and everything's perfect. I'm going to go there. So Lot chose the whole Jordan River Valley for himself. He took the best, the choice. You know, it's like someone offers you the cake and he cut his piece out of it right in the middle. He just took all that with all the you know, icing on it. So he did that. He started out towards the east and he separated. And Abram lived in the land of Canaan and Lot lived among the cities along the Jordan River. Now here's, here's the key thing here. He set up his tents near Sodom. Now we know that name. Sodom. Sodom is an infamous city for how evil and wicked it is. And actually the Bible says, now the people of Sodom were evil. Just in case you miss it, they're actually telling you the people of Sodom were evil. We to this day have something called an act of sodomy. And that comes from that word, right? So they were very well known. 
to be perverse, wicked, evil people. They were sinning greatly upon, uh, against the Lord. Now, something has happened here that the Bible doesn't dwell on, but it's really, really important to note. Both men had a choice to make. They pick a path and they follow the path. And the path that they follow from this point forward in their lives is going to determine how their lives end up. And there are moments when we have those kind of choices ourselves. We have a path to choose. And the path we choose is going to depend where we end up. Lot's path does not end up well. I'm just telling you. We won't go into all of it today because, frankly, it gets a little creepy, some of the stuff that happens in Lot's life. But he's going to end up kind of an afterthought. This will be the last time we're going to see him after today. We won't see him again. He disappears from the Bible. But here's what Lot does. Oh, okay, I get to pick. He looks to see, well, what's the rest of the world picked? That's where I'm going to go. That's clearly the best. Look, that's where the cities are. Everybody else has already chosen there. That's the best place to go. And if you're led by sight, the way of the world is always going to look best to you. And it just makes sense. I'm going to go over there. Now, Abraham doesn't go anywhere near there. He actually goes opposite from there. He may have been, thank God he didn't pick west. You know? And so he goes there. And he actually goes back. Uh, you know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. He goes back to the place he first heard God. He actually already has an altar set up there. So Abraham chooses to go back to where he hears God. Lot chooses to go where all the other men settled. So that's interesting. The other thing that's interesting is that in the, I was reading out of the, the New International Reader's Version, in case you're wondering where that came from, and it's because it's so easy to read. But actually, the, the original text says not just he put his tent near Sodom, he pitched his tent facing Sodom. Now, I don't know if you've ever been camping, but when you open the zipper of that tent, that's a big thing. Uh, I remember years and years and years ago, I was going to Colorado, and Colorado has a really great park set system, and, and um, we parked in this campground, and, and like, the way it worked is you just simply went, and you, you picked your park, if the campground was open, you picked it, you just put your money in the little box that was there, and the rangers came by in the morning and picked it up. It was kind of cool, because if you got there after hours, you didn't have to talk to anybody. And it set up, set up the tent, and it was pitch black when we set up the tent. And that morning, when I unzipped it, I was looking at Pikes Peak. It was just an incredible thing. Of zip, zip, wow, you've got to wake up and see this. You know, this is, this is amazing. I can't believe this, part, this spot that we picked. And that's just really cool. But what, what Lot did was he made sure that we opened his tent flap, he could see Sodom. Why? Because it fascinated him. That's why. There was a pull there, and we're going to see that. There's this little bit of fascination he has. Yeah, I know they're evil and wicked and everything, but it's kind of fun to watch them. You know, you never know what they're going to be wearing coming in and out of Sodom. You know, let's, let's kind of watch him from there. So he could open up his tent and actually see them. He got as close as he could. He wanted to see them. So that's the first time we see Lot. Then the fast forward there from some time, we don't know how much, but something happens. A big battle takes place. We talked about this a few weeks ago too. A big battle takes place. There's four kings that kind of rule the area. And we're calling them kings. They're kind of like city-states. They're like mayors almost, but they call themselves kings. So we'll call them kings. So there are four of them who kind of rule everything. And then five kings decide they're going to rebel against them. And two of the kings were from Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they set up and they decided they're going to fight. So king of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admon, and Zabrium, and Bela all marched out and they lined up in their armies for battle. This is really a funny description because according to what the Bible says, I don't think anything was actually fought. They line up their battle lines. We're going to fight them. We're going to fight them. And then when they see the other kings, they kind of take off. And so there were four kings against five. So they actually outnumbered them. And, the, and as soon as they kind of lined up, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah ran away. It's like, oops, we're out. You, know, you can kind of see they're a little bit weak characters, right? And it's like, ah, oh, you know what? We're out. So they run. 
And so the kings pursue them, and as they pursue them, they just start, everybody splits, but they're standing in front of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so the kings just say, well, they don't go back to their city, by the way. They run past it. They leave it undefended. They don't care. And so the kings say, well, I guess we'll just go take the food and take the stuff. And so they do. So the four kings took all the things that belonged to Sodom and Gomorrah. They just went in and looted the place. The army's gone. In fact, they carried away people for slavery, and they carried away Abram's nephew Lot and the things he owned. Lot was living in Sodom at that time. So I want you to see what's happened. He pitched his tent. It's kind of looking at it. I'm interested in it. I'm not going to go in there. Of course not. It's wicked, evil. But by the time this happens, he's actually there. And they come up. So here's the very interesting thing to me. Uh, no matter what he thinks about himself, because we always think we're righteous. We always think we're good because we know our hearts, you know. One of the very, very first things we always have to tackle when we do marital counseling is the fact that uh, people judge themselves by their intentions and they judge their spouse by their actions. There's this huge gap between intention and action, right? And so what's happened here is Lot's gone in there and he knows, I know who the real God is. I'm not going to participate in this evil, but I'm going to be there. Now, maybe, 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 we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us what's in Lot's mind. Maybe he thought he'd be a good witness, I'm going to move in there, and when I'm there, and they'll see my righteousness, and I'll change them. Because I meet people like this all the time. I meet Christians who tell me, I'm just hanging out with them because I want to be a good witness to them. And then you find out, if you really hang out with them, and you, and you really spend some time, you find these people aren't witnessing at all. Well, I'm, I'm picking my shot. I'm kind of waiting until I have just that right moment, and then I'm going to speak up. You watch. I'm just waiting for God. I pray all the time that God will open the door for me. And, and I'm just telling you, uh, that's really not what happens. What happens is you end up looking at sin long enough that you start sinning. That's usually what happens. And, and uh, the fact is that uh, what had happened a lot, even if he in his mind was still righteous, he wasn't. And here's how we know. Because four kings marched into Sodom and they took away the things that belonged to Sodom and they took him too. Listen, if somebody from outside cannot tell the difference between you and the sinners, then guess what? There is no difference. And we have to recognize that. We have to be honest with ourselves about what we're doing and why if we're ever going to get here. Uh, I meet all the time because, you know, we talk to him. We've actually counseled with these premarital sometimes. Uh, I'll meet either a young lady who's dating a man who's not saved or vice versa. And it's always the same thing. Well, I'm going to be a witness to them. I'm, I'm going to get them saved. You watch. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. And that's, that's not why you're there. You're not there for their soul. You're there because you like them. For whatever reason, you like them, and you're overlooking the fact that they're not saved. And honestly, the chances of you actually converting them is nowhere near as good as the chances of them converting you. And the best illustration I've ever seen on this, uh, I, I'm going to steal now. Uh, Matt Kaltenberger from the uh, Grace in Cranberry Church used this. I thought, well, that's brilliant. So I'm going to do this. Now, yesterday I had Noah help me. He's not here. Victoria, can you help me with this? Okay. So this is the deal. Let me give you, let me give you a, a, an illustration. Whoa. Let me walk away from the base. All right. No more subwoofer. Sorry. <sighs> Takes me back. The second week here, I think, we made a young child cry with feedback. So, so here's the deal. So I want you to picture this as a stairway to heaven, right? And if you're saved, you're walking up that, and you're getting righteous. Right? I'm getting closer to God and closer to everything else up there. So uh, I'm, good luck catching this on video, by the way, Emily. But, uh, so anyway, so, but I'm walking up here. And then I've got, uh, I decided I'm going to start dating the sinner. 
<clears throat> and this is my, this is, this is, this is, this is my illustration. She's taking the part of a sinner, right? So pretend she's as evil, wicked sinner, and I'm a good Christian. Let's not, let's not. So um, anyway, so I start dating somebody who's not saved, right? And so we're, we're going, because I'm going to, I'm going to save her because I'm, I'm getting closer to heaven. I'm close to God. And so we, we join, yeah? And uh, there's going to be a natural pull because I'm living near God and she's not, she's a sinner. And we're going to start pulling. Now, I outweigh her by a good bit. And I like to think that I'm even stronger than her. But I'm telling you something. If we both start pulling at this point, it's not going to take very much before she gets me down. Because it's a lot easier to pull somebody down than up. Thanks. She's also a lot stronger than she looks, just for the record. Yeah. Yay. All right. So I'm just saying that the chances of you pulling somebody up is very hard. Now, does that mean I can't witness to people? No, you can witness to people. But we need to be honest because in a lot of times we don't really have any intention of witnessing to them. We just kind of like hanging around the sinners, you know? Like to see what they're up to. And every now and then we'll fail uh, and then we get mad at ourselves and we'll repent and we'll get back at it, you know? But the reality is they're having a lot more influence on us than we ever are having on them. And we need to recognize that and be honest about it. Stop trying to hide it. You know, like, uh, and I'm saying this because, man, I'll tell you what, I'm the worst offender of this. I was a preacher's kid. You know, and I learned very early in my life that if you're a preacher's kid, um, you can't tell people you're a preacher's kid because none of the kids want to hang out with you after that. Oh, you're good. Yeah, I'm going to hang out with you. They're afraid you're going to tell on them, you know, when you're in grade school. And so if you want to be able to hang out with the kids and do the stuff the kids are doing, you don't tell them that. And I, I lived a lot of my life kind of hiding my Christianity, thinking I'm going to pick my spot. But I'll tell you what, the sinners don't wait, wait to pick their spots. They just live and they end up pulling you away. So the next time we see Lot show up, uh, it's right after the passage we talked about last week. And I was going to actually skip over this part, but I have to put it in there just because it's so funny. This is like one of those moments in the Bible that just cracks me up. The fact the Bible puts this kind of stuff in there, that I just love this. So the next thing happens, last week we talked about how God came to visit Abraham with two angels, but he didn't tell him he was God, right? He kind of an incognito. And Abraham was real generous to him and gracious and that was last, last week's lesson. If we're going to be people of faith, we also have to be people of generosity. So that was last week. But after this is all done, and he gets this great meal and gives them, and after this is all done, they're getting up to leave. And then God, in this wonderful scene, talks out loud to himself. Now, God doesn't have to talk out loud to himself, right? The only reason he's doing this is so not only Abraham would know this, but everybody would know this. He's going he's he's to work through something out loud so we'll know what he's thinking. So the Lord and the two angels got up to leave. They looked down towards Sodom because, you know, that's that way. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? <laughs> like, you know, Abraham's like, I'm right here. You know, what's, and he's, uh, he's going to become a great and powerful nation. In fact, he's certainly going to become a great and powerful nation. All nations on earth will be blessed because of him. I've chosen him and he must direct his children to live in a way that pleases me. He must direct the members of his family to do the same. Now, the only member of his family right now is Lot. So he must guide all of them in doing what is right and fair because I, the Lord, will then do for Abraham what I promised. In other words, he's saying there's a covenant, but they've got a responsibility. All of God's promises have this if, then. (laughs) If you do this, then I will bless you. They're all, if you look through Deuteronomy, it's always, if you this, I'll do this. If not, I'm out. And so he's saying, I want to bless Abraham and all of his descendants. I want to do that. So he's going to have to learn how to teach his family what he already knows. Sometimes we're real good at it, 
but we're not teaching our family. And he said, I, I, need, I need for that to happen. So then, you know, the uh, Lord says, the cries against Sodom and Gomorrah are very great. Their sin is so bad, I'm going to go down and see for myself. I want to see what they've done, to see if it's as bad as the cries that have reached me. And if not, then I will know what to do. And the two angels turn away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham jumps in front of the Lord. Whoa, 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 whoa. Before you, had, before you do that, Lord. And this is, this is hysterical. So, so you know that in that area, it's always about bartering and negotiating. So I want you to watch Abraham's negotiation skills with God. So he stands in front of the Lord. He says, um, Lord, um, <clears throat> will you sweep away the godly people along with those who are evil? Like, sure, you're going to go down to Sodom, and we know there's evil there. But would you destroy that whole city, including righteous people, just because they're there? He says, suppose you found 50 godly people. Would you really sweep it all away? Come on. Wouldn't you spare the place because of those 50 people in it? You would never kill godly people along with those who are evil, would you? You wouldn't treat them all alike. You would never do anything like that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what's right? So he's trying to manipulate God, which is hysterical, right? Because God knows everything, but God's having fun with this. I really think God left this chuckling. I, I think he just leaves it. I think he keeps a straight face in front of Abraham because he wants Abraham. You ever have a kid, like a little kid when they're little... They're, they're trying to plea bargain with you and you're trying to keep a straight face. I think that's what's happening. Parents, some of you have been through that before. Your child comes up to you to try to tell you why they need to stay up that night, you know. Uh, I remember uh, when Emily, I'm going to tell a story Emily now, when she was about five years old, we were visiting some people and it was time to leave. And she was having a great time with the kids upstairs. And so I said, it's time to leave. She goes, I can't leave. I said, you can't? She goes, no. I said, why not? And she says, well, look over here. And she walked over and they had this like wooden giraffe. It was almost, you know, Here's a giraffe. I said, yeah, I see that. And she walked up and said, another statue. See, this, there's a bear. I said, yeah, I see that too. And, and, and over here's a wolf. I said, I see. She goes, that means I can't leave. I said, okay, now you lost me. Right? So I was with you up until that, but now I've kind of, you've kind of lost me. I don't know where this goes. But you know how that is when kids are trying to bargain with you, and sometimes as a parent you're letting it happen. And you're, that's God. He's like trying not to laugh, right, as Abraham starts. Okay, uh, and so he says, um, all this, he sets it all up, and then God says, you know what? If I find 50 godly people in the city of Sodom, I will spare it. I'll spare the whole place just because of them. Okay, great. Then, Lord, then Abraham spoke up again. Uh, now, I've been very bold to speak so far, Lord. After all, I'm only dust and ashes, right? He's trying to really set himself up for the negotiation. Uh, but what about if it's five less than 50? How about that? Just five less. We've established 50 a number. How about five less than that? Maybe if I only find 45, and God says, you know what? If I could find 45 there, I won't destroy it. Once again, Abraham spoke and says, but what if it's only 40? How about 40? And God says, you know what? If there's 40, I won't do it. Uh, Lord, Abraham says, please don't be angry with me. Let me speak. Let me just one more time. What if only 30 could be found there? And the uh, Lord says, if I find 30, I won't do it. And, you know, he must really have a hard time keeping a smile off his face. Abraham says, now I've been very bold to speak to the Lord, but what if only 20 could be found there? And God says, you know what? If I can find 20. I won't destroy it. And finally, he says, one more time, um, let me, just one more time, what if only 10 people were? Boy, we've really come down now, right? Just 10. Just 10 people. Now, Lot's there, and he knows that, which is why he's bargaining. And Lot's there with his wife and two children. Well, there's four right there, right? There should be. And so he says, what about only 10? And the Lord says, I, if I find 10 there, I won't destroy it. And then when he's finished speaking, uh, he laughs, probably to laugh. He probably had a, boy, that guy cracks me up. He probably telling the angels, that guy is so funny. And, and he left, and Abraham returned home, because that's as good as he can do. Unfortunately, it's not enough. They wouldn't find 10. In fact, they will only find one. 
and honestly, lots of little so-so. Uh, because here's the, here's the point, really honestly, no one who's righteous should even be living in Sodom. It's like living in the midst of sin. And you're not just living there, you know, because you're trying to witness. He didn't open a temple. He wasn't worshiping. Remember when, when Abraham went to the promised land, he sets up an altar and starts calling on the name of the Lord out loud in the midst of his enemies. That's what Abraham does. Lot's quiet. In fact, Lot is so quiet, they actually make him a city elder. He's one of them. And he can kid himself all day long that he's there to witness, but he's one of them. Because when the two angels arrive in Sodom in that evening, Lot was sitting near the gate of the city. That's where the elders sat. I don't know if you guys were here when we did the Ruth series. But when, uh, when they want to talk about what has to happen, they met the elders at the gate. That was how it was done. The gates was where the elders gathered. He was an elder. may have even been the mayor. He may have been actually leading the city at that point. So he is totally immersed with them. And so um, and when he sees him, he comes up to greet him, and he's going to bow down with his face to the ground. He says, oh, you know, glad, because he sees them as angels. They, they don't hide it from him. Uh, and then he tries very, very hard not to get them to go into the city. He doesn't know why they're there, but he's trying to keep them safe. And it goes very, very badly. The whole city turns out that night, and they want to rape them, men and women. They just want to rape them. And um, it's really, really bad. And so the angel said, look, we're going to destroy the city. You need to get out of here. And he and his whole family have to leave, and his wife can't. She just looks back, and she can't. She misses the city. So it, it doesn't end well. The, 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 from there, it gets even weirder, and the last scene we see is Lot and his two daughters in a very uh, perverse scene, and that's it. We'll never, see, we'll never see Lot again. This whole city uh, has gripped him because he wasn't just living there. He was now in a place of honor indistinguishable. And let me, let me just say that this often, often, often is exactly what happens. We just slowly and surely get pulled in. And then if we ever do speak up, the people are actually angry with us. Um, I don't know, has anybody, I asked this question last night, and nobody ever heard of this, but has anybody ever heard of a book called The Cross and the Switchblade? A couple of you, okay. So The Cross and the Switchblade was written by David Wilkerson, and uh, he started a ministry called Teen Challenge. And it's a true story. He was a pastor in Pennsylvania, and uh, he saw this picture in a newspaper of these boys being tried for mass murder, and they're members of a New York gang, a ruthless gang called the Mau Mau's. And the, the one picture of Nicky Cruz, who was the warlord of the Mau Mau's, caught his heart, and he couldn't let it go. And he just felt it, God was telling him to go and try to witness to Nicky Cruz. And so this was actually a, a person going into the sin world to witness. He was going in there as a missionary. And it's an incredible story. I mean, he puts his, I mean, he comes close to being killed many times by Nicky himself. Um, and he's beat up and he, a lot of things happen to him. But he persists, he persists, he persists. And Nicky Cruz has never seen anything like this. And eventually, um, Nicky Cruz gives his heart to the Lord. And as soon as he becomes a Christian, he realizes, I can't be warlord of the Mau Mau's anymore. <laughs> you know, I can't do this. And uh, so he's going to leave. And his girlfriend at the time, and it was a gang girlfriend, right? So they're like, you know, it's almost like slaves. And so his girlfriend at the time uh, found out he got saved. He says, oh, I'm so happy. Uh, now we can be together. He says, what are you talking about? She goes, I'm a Christian too. And she thought this was going to be their out. They're going to leave together and happily ever after. And he wants to know parts of her. He says, you're a Christian all this time, the stuff we did? Watching me do the stuff I did, and you didn't say anything? I don't want any parts of you. You were okay with me going to hell. So he actually got angry with her for not witnessing once he understood what it was about. 
But this is how it is. If you're going to witness to people and you're not changed and you're just like them, why would they listen to you? They're going to say, whoa, 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 Here, here's the deal. We both go sin, but you feel guilty about it. You want me to be like you? No, thanks. We're both sinners. I'm just a better sinner. Why would I want what you have? And if you, if you really say, no, 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 I understand all this. I say, well, why don't you say something sinner? Why are we sinning all the time? You know, you're, you're no different. That's what Jesus says. You're supposed to be the salt. Salt has no flavor. What good is it? It's not worth anything at all. But the, 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 the reality is that many Christians will run around with sinners just because they're secretly drawn to the sinful life. And Paul knows this. He actually says this um, in 1 Corinthians. He says this, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. You hang around them, guess what happens? All your intentions won't matter. Bad company will corrupt good morals. Because we, we, we have this mentality, and it's actually put in us for a reason. God put this in us, but the devil uses it. We, have a, we want to be part of a community. We do. And if that's your community, you want to be part of it. You don't want to be the outsider. You want to be part of it. And so you will compromise. Do not be confused. Come to your senses. He says, stop sinning. He goes on and says, some of your friends are ignorant about God, and I say this to your shame. How you hang around and they don't even know what you believe? You, you're just doing that. So we have to understand that um, this is biblical, that he's telling us we have to be worried about this. But many Christians, they just don't care. In fact, there's a scripture that's often used in marriage counseling. We use it. It's often used in marriage counseling, but it was really not written to husbands and wives. It's a very famous scripture. It's in uh, 2 Corinthians 8. Do not be unequally yoked. Have you ever heard that? Do not be unequally yoked. And what we always say, well, you see, you can't marry a non-believer. That's not actually what Paul's saying. He's talking about your friends. And, of course, husband and wife should be friends, but I'm just saying he's actually, this isn't a marital advice. He's, he's telling us all this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, which is a, a, an idol of the day? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has God with a temple of idols? What, what, what are you mixing this stuff for? There's absolutely no reason that you should be there, but you know what? The reality is, if you're running with sin, sinners, you're doing it because you kind of want to sin. And then we have an excuse. Oh, uh, I tried. It was just too hard. And be- believe me, I'm, I'm putting myself in here. I've been here. Oh, I don't know why, God. I, I can't believe I did that. Really? Because you've been doing it all along. I, I don't understand what the, what the shock is. I can't believe I did that. Really? You can't believe it? Kind of been working towards this for a while. In fact, uh, Galatians, Paul comes back and says this, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You will reap what you sow. If you sow the flesh, you'll reap the flesh in corruption. If you sow the spirit, you will reap everlasting life. But let's not grow weary of doing what's good. So don't give up. Keep doing what's good. Do what's right. Separate yourself. Come out from the world. This is what you have to do. Here's, here's the thing, and this is a lesson we have to learn from Lot's life. If we want to be good, we want to have a successful Christian life, we have to know this that Lot made his decision when he chose to move towards Sodom. He took his first step there. His decision was made. The rest of it is just details. It was going to happen. Right? It's just a matter of time before he gets there. And what happens next in Lot's life is that he could not resist the pull of sin. And I'm sure when it all happened, when the angels came, he said, well, you know, I tried to resist. I just can't. Maybe you have a sin in your life. Everybody has their favorite sin. I've got mine, you know, a couple of them. You have your favorite sin, you just can't resist it. And you cry out to God, why can't I stop doing this? I can't stop it. 
It's not fair. It's not right. Why don't you help me? God, I just need your strength to help me. You know, and it, actually God says in his word that there's, that, that there's always a way out of your sin. You know, everybody has the same temptation. God always provides a way out. Well, I didn't see the way out, God. I couldn't resist it. I don't know. But here's the thing. If Lot was saying that, you have to understand. The reason he could not resist the sin was because he had arranged his life to support it. Starting by where he pitched his tent. And so do you. That sin in your life that you can't beat, you have arranged your life to support it. I don't know what it is. Everybody's got theirs. I've got mine. You've got yours. But you have to understand, if there's a sin you can't beat and you've been struggling with it for a very long time, let me give you the secret right now. The root of your sin is buried in the fertile ground of your habits, which have been established to support your sin. That's what's going on. And unless you want to do the work to really get rid of it, it's never going to be gone. You know, we have uh, poison ivy in our house. You guys know that. Victoria got infected with a bunch of it. You can cut off the poison ivy, it'll come back. Poison ivy is nasty stuff. If you just cut off the, the leaves, you, know, you can spray Roundup on it. It kills it all off. It'll be back. That's what sin's like in your life. It's like poison ivy. <laughs> There's only one way to get rid of it. You got to dig it up by the roots. The root of the sin is buried in the things you've done in your life to support it. You are supporting the sin that you're trying to get rid of. This is what Jesus is telling us in Matthew 5. <clears throat> he says, look, if your right eye causes you to sin, poke it out and throw it away. I can't help it, God. I just see it. I can't, I just, I can't resist it. Well, then Jesus says, it's simple. Blind yourself. Then you won't see it. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and throw it away. I can't help it, you know. I, I hit him in anger. I, that's like almost the hand moved it itself. Oh, the hand moved it itself, Jesus says, then cut it off. Now, we know that it's not really the hand, and it's not really the eye, and so does Jesus. But what he's saying is, how serious are you about getting rid of the sin? Are you willing to make drastic changes to get rid of things that you might really like in your life in order to make the sin in your life stop? Are you willing? Because if not, then you're just playing games. That's really what he's saying here. Are you going to get serious with this or not? What are you holding on to which is enabling your sin? You may have to make lifestyle changes to get rid of sin in your life. But that's because you've built the life around it. You're going to have to do it to get it out. Uh, when, when I was having problems with my ankles, you know, they went to do the ankle surgery and I went to see this other doctor. He goes, don't do that. Just start walking right. So I have neuromas on both my feet. And, and the way you're supposed to walk, you push off your, your, the ball of your foot. And that's right where that neuroma is. And the neuroma is a, a tumor that grows on a nerve. And man, sometimes you hit it just right. It feels like someone shot volts up my leg. It's nasty. So what I've learned to do over time was I step down with my toes gingerly, make sure my, the ball of my foot hits just right, and then I drop my, my heel, and then I step forward again. And I do the same thing. He says, you're walking backwards. As long as you're doing that, your ankle's going to be a problem. You want to fix it, make yourself walk the way it was supposed to. Right? And if you feel a jolt, feel the jolt. There's something else we can do about that, but you've got to learn how to walk right. You've, you've developed your whole lifestyle around, around this thing because you're afraid of it. It was buried in you, and that's all that's going on. We sometimes are going to have to change our whole lifestyle to really get rid of the sin that's in our life. Are you serious about it or not? Are you, are you willing to do that? Because uh, James says this, submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. If you're resisting the devil and he's not fleeing from you, guess what? It's because you've put a chair in your house for him. 
That's why. You know, the devil comes in and sits in the chair that you've made for him. And resist. You must run from me. He says, no, I don't. I got a chair here. I'm just going to stay. You resisted me? Cool. I'll come back again in a minute. I'll just take a pause and I'll come back again. If we really cleanse ourselves, our minds, and purify our hearts, then that chair is gone. But as long as we're letting him come in and sit down, he's not going anywhere. We, we have to understand and we have to get really, really serious about this. Um, so Jesus tells us, Isaiah, he quotes Isaiah and, and says this, the Lord says the people draw near me with their words, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. As long as your heart's determined to sin, you're going to sin. And there's no scripture you're going to find that's going to be a magic cure to that. As long as your heart is not really determined to get this out of your life. Uh, so I had, I told you this, and actually this is going to come up again in, in the Jesus Razor Servant, but um, I, I kind of lived a bit of a halfway Christian life through much of my life. I mean, I knew who God was. I always believed in him. But, you know, I kind of hid a lot of it. And it didn't work out so well for me. And uh, shortly before we even began to think about Spirit Chapel, this predates Spirit Chapel by a few months, I was, in, I was doing a Bible study, like for the first time in life, a really, really good Bible study. I was personal time with the Lord. And I was reading through this, this uh, scripture in Revelation, which is a book I used to stay away from because Revelation creeps me out a little bit. It gets a little weird. But um, my Bible study took me there, and I'm reading this. And, and here's, here's what I read. I'll never forget this because I'm sitting on my deck outside, in the morning, I read this scripture. I know your deeds. This is, God. this is Jesus himself speaking. I know that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. But because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now that word spit in the old King James is spew, which is a really great word, right? So I'm like, what does that word mean, spew, spit? What is it? So I actually looked it up. You know, I went to my you know, Bible and I looked it up and I found the original Greek and I read the definition, and I don't mean to be gross here today, but um, just so we're sure that we understand what Jesus is saying, this isn't, um, I spit you out like, no, this is like projectile vomiting is what he's saying. It's not like, you make me so sick, I, I threw up in my mouth a little bit. He's saying, no, it makes me so sick, I spew with force as far as I can get it. That's, that's how serious he is when he's saying this. And I'll never forget, I'm reading that. And as I'm reading about this neither hot nor cold, kind of lukewarm, I wouldn't have described myself as a lukewarm Christian, but I was a halfway Christian, you know, kind of a little bit there, not too holy, righteous, that people, I, I thought I had to be approachable, but I wasn't really a sinner. I was kind of like in the you know, sweet spot, you know, everything in moderation, including my Christianity, just kind of, just kind of there. And um, believed in God, thought I was going to heaven, everything was fine, but I'm not going to be wowed about it, you know, I don't. And so I'm sitting there, and when I see this, and I understand what Jesus just said, I put down my Bible. I'll never forget, I actually said out loud, that's harsh. That's a little harsh, I think. And I said, Jesus, why are you so harsh? Because I mean, at least they're trying, right? They look warm, at least you're trying. I said, Jesus, why are you so against halfway Christians? And I didn't expect an answer but I got one. I'll never forget it because I asked that question out loud. I actually spoke the words out loud and instantly this thing pops in my head like a, like a what we call inner voice. It's like, bang. As soon as I said it, God, why are you so against halfway Christians? Jesus said, because I didn't go halfway to the cross. I'm all in for you. A lot of arguments just kind of go away at that point, right? 
Are you serious about this or not? Because sooner or later, we come to a moment in our life and, and where we have to choose a path. And that path that we start is either going to lead us to the Lord or it's going to lead us to Sodom. That's really where it goes. One or the other. Either we're going to be halfway Christians and end up becoming full-way sinners. Or we're going to be real Christians and end up coming home to God. And it's our choice which path we choose. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll give us a new picture of you. We know what we're supposed to do, and sometimes it's just hard. Give us the courage to face the things that we've done in our lives to let sin prosper and help us to pull it out by its roots. For I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wish I knew when this mountain in my way is going to move.